This is Monday Morning QB, November 9th, 2020. I'm Askia Muhammad. Today on the show, we go live to Georgia for the very, very latest in the battles in that battleground state. Businesses in Washington looked like a hurricane was coming. Taking it to the streets, activists celebrated the apparent defeat of Donald Trump and at the same time are prepared for action to keep the Biden administration accountable. In San Francisco, voters approved an overpaid executives tax and pandemic politics continues to rage over the reopening of DC's public schools. All that and our sincere gratitude to you for all your contributions to WPFW's fall membership drive. We cannot do this without you. Thank you. It happened Saturday morning. There was a huge national exhale as the 2020 race to the White House was called by virtually all the major news media outlets, including Rupert Murdoch-owned Fox News and the Wall Street Journal for now President-elect Joe Biden. At this moment, Biden has secured 290 electoral votes and is on track to win 306. That is, if his slim lead holds in Georgia. Georgia! Biden's victory in Georgia came as a surprise. The state hasn't voted for a Democratic presidential candidate in 28 years. And much of the credit for that is going to Stacey Abrams, who narrowly lost the rates for governor of Georgia in 2018. But in 2019, Abrams founded the Voting Rights Organization, Fair Fight Action, and began the tireless work of turning that red state blue. The work paid off. But as Abrams has made clear in a recent Twitter post, the work is not over. Hello, and thank you to the grassroots activists, the allied organizations, volunteers, and of course, all of you voters for your efforts over the years to create this new Georgia. I am so grateful for your contributions in making Georgia a pivotal battleground state. Vice President Biden now leads in the race for Georgia's 16 electoral college votes. Without your faith, this would not have been imaginable. And without your hard work, this would not have been possible. As we continue to make sure that every vote is counted and every voice is heard, our work is not done. In Georgia, we have two Senate runoff elections on January 5th. My friends John Ossoff and Reverend Raphael Warnock are on the ballot and control of the United States Senate will likely come down to these two races. That means access to health care and access to justice are still on the line. Please go to gasenate.com and join our efforts to elect John Ossoff and Reverend Raphael Warnock to the United States Senate. That's gasenate.com. We have seen what's possible when we work hard and when we work together. We know we can win Georgia. Now let's get it done again. In another Twitter post, Abrams emphasized that this type of success can never be attributed to one person. And she gave a shout out to the many women who joined in her fight. That includes Ense Ufat. She is the CEO of the New Georgia Project, a nonpartisan effort founded by Abrams to register and civically engage the rising electorate in Georgia. The New Georgia Project registered more than 50,000 Georgians to vote this year, 
according to the organization's website. And it offered rides to the polls and other resources for voters. Joining us now is Inse Ufat. Oh, thank you for having me. Good morning. Got to start off with this. I saw a headline today that Georgia might flip, that Georgia might even boil over. What does that mean? What it means is that the argument that we have been making for quite some time, um, the entire country has a proof point, and that is that uh, electoral outcomes in Georgia, like most other places, are determined by, one, who shows up, and two, whose votes get counted. And nowhere um, <clears throat> are black voters more essential to the electoral outcomes than in the state of Georgia. Before I ask you about what you just said, who are some of the women? Stacey Abrams gets a lot of well-deserved credit for what happened in Georgia, but who are some of the other women who helped get out the vote in the Peach State? Yeah, so I, I could not agree with you more. Stacey deserves all of the flowers and all of the credit for her faith and her belief and her vision, um, and then what she has helped build um, in our state over the past decade. Um, but yeah, we are an ecosystem. I think that that's why it's so important. When there's an individual leader that people can point to, um, you know, they worked really hard to discredit her and her leadership and her ideas during the governor's race. Um, I think back to the civil rights movement of the 1960s. Again, you can um, assassinate one leader, um, but the work continues. Um, and so that's what we have built. That's what we are building in Georgia. I'm super, you know, uh, fortunate to be in community with Helen Butler. Um, so she runs the Georgia Coalition for the People's Agenda um, of Voting Rights group that was convened by Dr. Joseph Lowry, um, the dearly and most recently departed Dr. Joseph Lowry. Um, you know, there are uh, other organizations. There's Fair Fight, um, also started by Stacey. There is uh, Pro-Georgia, which is a sort of nonpartisan civic engagement table that's run by Sister Tamika Atkins. Like, there's names on names on names. Um, this is not an individual person's victory. Um, we are building infrastructure, and I think that that's what's important. That's what matters. That's how we win, and that's how we replicate this in states across the South. A lot of attention is being paid to black women and women, but is this a gender-limiting movement? I don't know what that means. Is it just is it just women involved? I mean, are there men who are also uh, taking the leadership in what's happened in Georgia in particular? Absolutely. I was, this is a black family movement, right? So I think that that is super important to flag that we do this work because we want to build power, power to stop bad things from happening to our, us, to our families, to our communities. And we do it for the love. We do it because we love ourselves and we love our families, right? And so there's not a, there's, there's not a set of circumstances where it makes sense to leave anybody in the black family out of this new Georgia that we're building. 
you quoted as saying that there's a belief among the Democratic Party that holding the center is important and that the idea of this mythical unicorn of white male moderate Democrat that they need to placate in order to win elections has been thoroughly debunked. Has it really been debunked? Aren't the Democrats going once again in the upcoming Senate runoff races for those same uh, white so-called moderate voters? I Well, where do you, do you have evidence of that? Like, I'm curious about what you're seeing. I really am. Well, I'm the, 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 I guess it's 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 all conjecture, but a lot of reports are saying that the money is being poured into Georgia in order to court the uh, the the moderates, the so-called centrists. Well, that's a losing strategy, and I think that we have proven over and over again that that's a losing strategy. Um, and so I think that if folks who are interested in winning in Georgia and doing what it actually takes to win, as opposed to looking like you're doing what it takes to win, then they will understand that the key to progressive political uh, electoral outcomes in Georgia is investing in centering aggressively recruiting, aggressively messaging um, black voters, period, point blank, the end. Without giving away any secrets to what the strategy is for the upcoming runoff elections, the two Senate runoffs, uh, what do you plan to do in the new Georgia movement? Yeah, I mean, we're going to knock on a million doors. Listen, um, uh, all the Atlanta public schools, high school graduation class of 2020 um, were canceled due to COVID. And today there is a joint high school graduation with 900 graduating seniors that we're celebrating, and we plan to register them all to vote. So the voter registration deadline is um, December 7th. Early voting starts December 14th. And, you know, we plan to make sure that particularly black voters in Georgia know that they have all of the information <clears throat> that they need in order to make decisions for themselves and for their families. Um, and that we are going to be there to make sure that we shed a light um, and inject some transparency into the elections process and into the process of counting their votes um, because Georgia has a long and a recent history of voter suppression, and we're going to do everything that we can to make sure that that doesn't um, mute the voices of black voters who are going to be weighing in uh, on this runoff election. Police accountability is on the ballot. Is some, I guess, moderate uh, uh, Democratic leaders are suggesting that that's a liability. Is that a liability or is that a necessity? It's absolutely a necessity. Like, we are talking about, one, black lives, our lives, um, and that is no laughing matter. So if, you know, one out of 1,000 black folks in this country have died due to COVID, and that is an urgent matter, um, we absolutely need to be talking about other ways that the state puts our health and our lives in danger and at risk. 
Um, and so people, I don't think that people will take you seriously if you don't have a plan to address that. I don't think that black voters are going to take you seriously if you don't have a plan to address it. I think it's extraordinarily important. Um, I think that some of the, the folks who are worried about that are, are playing politics, and they're playing politics with our lives, and we can't stand for it. And I also don't think that they're in Georgia. Any thoughts on the increase in white women voters and white voters in general for Donald Trump in this past election? I mean, what are my thoughts about that? Listen, apparently, you know, violent racism and sexism is not a deal breaker for some voters. Um, We've been doing a lot of data analysis as we prepare for the runoff. And what I've learned is that across the country and across all genders and race demographics that Trump lost the vote extraordinarily by um, voters who make under $50,000 a year. Um, And for voters, particularly white voters who made over $100,000 a year, his numbers went up. And so while it is absolutely a class and a gender uh, a, a race and a gender thing that needs to be addressed. What we we need to keep it a buck about people who have profited from this administration. We need to keep it real about people who are making money by having a mad and in the White House. Finally, why do you and members of your coalition work so hard when you're continually kicked to the curb by the establishment Democrats who keep saying moderates, centrists? instead of your uh, really grassroots constituents? Well, one, we don't, we definitely haven't been kicked to the curb. Uh, what I will say, we've built infrastructure outside of the party system. We've recruited progressive candidates. We've recruited black candidates who have a black agenda and who are mounting successful primary challenges. Listen, we believe in freedom and we believe in liberation and we organize for it. We don't want to look like we're doing the things that it takes to win. We want to actually win for our families, not rhetoric. We need wins, and we need to be able to defend those wins beyond one election cycle. So we get in there, we mix it up, and we're not going to take any tool off of the table that's designed to like help us build the Georgia of our dreams. And so that means recruiting candidates who share our values, who are organizers, who are accountable to our communities, and then making sure that they win. Nsay Ufad, Executive Director of the New Georgia Project, thank you. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Georgia, Georgia, Georgia. Of course, Georgia's got the Stone Mountain, but Georgia has its own anthem. Georgia, Georgia, the whole day through, just an old sweet song keeps Georgia on my mind. Georgia. 
the immortal Ray Charles. Americans took to the streets in record numbers during the Trump presidency. They challenged immigration policy, foreign policy, and racist policing. But now the country faces a different set of protest prerogatives. Since November 3rd, Americans have taken to the streets not only to celebrate democracy, but to also demonstrate that Trump must abide by democracy's outcome and veteran organizers have already strategized about how to protest a Biden administration if or when necessary. Reporter Chris Banger Drowns has more. Protest has become a fixture of American life in recent years, and Trump's departure from the nation's highest office doesn't mean demonstrators will depart our streets. The Occupy Wall Street and Black Lives Matter movements were both born under a Democratic administration, and similar protest waves could be expected with Joe Biden in the White House. 
but most demonstrations right now are focused on more immediate goals, celebrating an election victory and ensuring Trump recognizes that victory. Jennifer Flynn Walker, Senior Director of Mobilization and Advocacy at the Center for Popular Democracy Action, describes this week's demonstrations. We are trying to send a message that this is a democracy and the people decide who our representatives will be. And we have several means of doing that. Voting is one of them. And if the vote's not respected, then certainly you know, the people showing up together and giving an example of people power, how many people are out there who are following this, who are watching. We are not just going to let every vote not be counted. And that that is actually part of celebrating democracy is participating in it. So we are participating in democracy. We've seen this incredible groundswell of organizing around racist police brutality since the spring. How has that resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement helped in the efforts to mobilize folks around the election, and and not just in terms of getting out the vote, but also in terms of protecting the results of the vote? I think that, you know, the largest protest that this country has ever seen, you know, that took place this summer, galvanized people to understand how important this election is and, you know, made them brave. They saw people bravely taking the streets together in peaceful demonstration, and they recognized that they could also do their part by showing up at the polls. And that's, you know, I think what contributed to the record number of voters turning out. So I think that there was a direct line from, you know, the protests to voter turnout and engagement. I think it also sent the message that Obviously, we don't want to have a fascist, we can't have a fascist or a person who has authoritarian tendencies, who's destroying our democracy, engaging in racist rhetoric, creating racist policies, putting kids in cages, you know, in office, but that also whoever we put into office, we can hold them accountable to actually take action on the issues that matter to everyday folks. So I think that when people realize that and that we could elect someone that we could actually work with, that we could actually engage and who was willing to tackle policies that would show that Black Lives Matter and who was willing to say Black Lives Matter. And so I think that it definitely led to the record in voter engagement. And, you know, the people who showed up over the summer are also a lot of the same people who are showing up now. They realize that the arc of justice is long and it bends long and and that this is, you know, a, a marathon, not a sprint. So they've continued to show up. And, you know, they also made it populist so that people, wherever they were, could come out and actually have their voices heard. And I think that that was a lesson that a lot of people needed to learn, relearn. Expanding on this theme, there has been a lot of organizing over the last four years, from the Women's March to the wave of teacher strikes to resistance to the Kavanaugh nomination, of course, Black Lives Matter. Uh, And some of it's been directly related to Trump and the election. Some of it's been more focused on systemic issues. But it seems in general that the Trump administration has increased people's appetite for protest and political action. Uh, Do you see that to be the case? And if so, can that energy be sustained under a Biden administration? I think that people saw just how fragile our democracy is with the election of Trump. So it wasn't, you know, in part, it was him. It was that he regularly used racist rhetoric and language, enacted policies that were really beyond the pale in terms of, you know, the moral compass of America. Um, And I think that that definitely galvanized people. But 
I also think that it showed people, you know, there was kind of this lull before, like we thought that, you know, there's really three branches of government and there's checks and balances and it's kind of all taking care of itself. And I think that what people learned from the Trump administration is it doesn't take care of itself. A democracy needs to be popular, hence the name of the Center for Popular Democracy. We need to engage with it. So I think once you learn that lesson, you kind of can't unlearn it. And so you, you recognize that, you know, if I'm upset about something, if I don't feel like I have the health care that I need, I can go and ask the people in power to give me the health care that I need. And so I do think that that coupled with the actual real lived conditions, you know, poverty is growing, the gap between billionaires and the rest of us has grown tremendously. COVID is taking lives at a rate that really is unimaginable. I think people will continue to engage. And I think all of those groups have plans, like the you know, Black Lives Matter movement has sparked the Breathe Act and given a legislative mandate. And I think that that's how they're looking at it. You know, I think that the Women's March is going to continue to push for their platform legislatively. And I think that they'll still be engaged. You'll just see different tactics. I'm sure our, our DC listeners and others across the country remember Inauguration Day 2017 with militant resistance and mass arrests, including of journalists. Uh, should we expect something similar on January 20th, 2021, except this time geared at kicking the president out? Well, you know, like Masha Gessen says, believe what he says. I mean, he gave the speech. It doesn't seem like he's going to concede. Groups have been planning. Organizations have been planning. People have been planning to show up. I think everybody's ready to show up in the streets to say that there was a fair election. Our votes were counted. He is not the president anymore, and he's got to go. And, you know, I think that all of the apparatus that exists to make sure that that peaceful transfer of power happens will be engaged. But honestly, I think it just gets sadder and sadder every day. I thought that his speech was incredibly pathetic and an um, illustration of his weakness. So I can't imagine that that will inspire his supporters in any real way. You know, it's funny. It's like when Joe Biden would say, don't worry, just vote and he'll be out of there. And I thought that that sounded very like, what, what do you mean? Of course, there's going to be all these protests and we're going to have to do all this stuff to get him out of there, you know, and but actually, I think he, he just will actually have to leave. And we're ready to have protests. We've got them planned. You know, hundreds of thousands of people across the country will turn out, if need be, in nonviolent protest. But actually, I think he's just going to go. You know, I don't think he's going to give a beautiful concession speech and, like, wish President Biden well. I don't think that he's going to, like, shake hands at the, at the door of the White House on the 20th. <laughs> but... I think he's going to leave. If in case folks need to mobilize, how can our listeners keep on top of announcements for actions going forward? Yeah. So we already have actions planned on issues, for example. So there's a case that could rule that the Affordable Care Act will be ruled unconstitutional before the Supreme Court. That's happening on Tuesday. We're asking people to show up at 9 a.m. in front of SCOTUS to join us to save the Affordable Care Act. And, you know, that case at this point doesn't matter who's the president, although obviously having a president who believes in health care like Joe Biden will be useful because we can actually pass some legislation just in case we lose the Affordable Care Act to replace it with something even maybe better. 
but we are hoping that we turn out enough people, that we have enough people speaking out that they need the Affordable Care Act, tens of millions of people across the country rely on it. So there's, there's actions like that on issues happening all the time. But of course, people can go to protect the results, the website protecttheresults.org. And you, know, you can find actions that have already been planned throughout the entire month. You know, just as a reminder that we're celebrating our democracy and we want to make sure that every single vote is counted. We realize we want to make sure that the states certify the results as they should be. We want to make sure that the Electoral College votes the way that they should be and they don't the last minute try to change the outcome of the election and that the, you know, the people have spoken. So all of those things happen throughout the month of November into December. So people should still continue to monitor the protect the results website and look for actions near you. Jennifer Flynn Walker, Senior Director of Mobilization and Advocacy at the Center for Popular Democracy Action. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. Recently, businesses in the nation's capital boarded up ahead of the election like a hurricane was coming. The measures were in preparation for essentially the unknown. Without the advice of the D.C. government as to what precautions they should take, business owners had to decide on their own whether or not to board up their windows ahead of the election in anticipation of post-election violence. Amara Evering reports. Despite the election being called on Saturday, our country still waits in what feels like a period of uncertainty. In D.C., Nothing really shows us more than what looks like countless blocks of boarded-up businesses downtown. These endless rows of plywood-covered windows sends a chilling message about the state of politics, our economy, and even the state of racial tensions in the city. I spoke with Dr. Derek Hyra, Associate Professor at American University and the founding director of the Metropolitan Policy Center. He described what he saw as he drove through downtown D.C. this weekend. I drove through downtown Washington, and it looks like Washington is about to get ready for a Category 5 hurricane. And that's unprecedented. I've never seen anything like that. There are so many boarded up buildings down there in anticipation that there will be unrest. And it made me really sad that many of the businesses and even the White House feels like our country is out of control. A week before the election, D.C. business owners received an email saying that the district does not recommend boarding up their buildings, but in the same email, they encouraged business owners to stay vigilant in the coming weeks while keeping in close communication with their security directors. So without official guidance from the city, these business owners were pushed to make this decision on their own. And in this climate of tension and uncertainty, Many businesses chose to board up, but it's important to note that not all did. But there are other businesses in D.C. that aren't boarded up that I noticed. Jose Andres and Haleo, it's not boarded up. He's a local business entrepreneur. Uh, Andy Shalal and Busboys and Poets, not boarded up. On 7th Street, you have Wanda Henderson. She has a hair shop. Wanda's on 7th, not boarded up. I just saw Rick Lees and his flower shop an industrial bank not boarded up on U Street. Those are two Black-owned businesses that made it through the 1968 riots. And during this time, they're not boarding up. And I almost think that it's a signal that there are certain local entrepreneurs 
that understand the city and people understand their business. For many businesses in the city, this was their second or third time boarding up their windows since May after the murder of George Floyd. And those that didn't often did so out of solidarity with protesters. But these business owners weren't necessarily in the majority, as much of downtown has been periodically covered in plywood on and off for the past few months. Hyra points out that the fact that downtown businesses feel threatened in the midst of potential social unrest is something of a new phenomenon. We definitely saw in the 1960s that most of the urban unrest took place in low-income African-American communities. And most of the anger and frustration that people were feeling were taken out in their local context with businesses that were in their community. And rarely did it really transpire outside of the inner city. And I think that today, with what we saw in 2020, is that unrest didn't stick to the inner city. It went to areas outside of low-income Black areas. People are letting their voices be heard outside of their communities. But the current boarding up is different than what we've been seeing in the past few months. We have seen some boarding up related to Black Lives Matter protesting, but the massive amount of boarding that I just saw is really related to presidential politics. I mean, the White House is surrounded by a large fence. Also, the Apple store is surrounded by a large fence that you can't penetrate. City center is entirely boarded up. Though D.C. officials on Sunday have asked businesses and property owners to remove boards and fences, Hira believes that some may still stay boarded up. But I think the businesses are still going to stay boarded up now because there is a fear that Republican right-wing people will come into D.C. to surround the president. And the president has said that he is not necessarily willing to give up power based on the rules of our democracy. And I think that when you add that tension into a city that has been facing tensions of police brutality, has been facing the tensions related to the COVID crisis, has had tension and pressure related to rising unemployment, and there is a fear that it might explode, but the explosion is related to multiple dynamics and dynamics related to race but manifesting themselves in different ways. A lot of it, I think, the undercurrents of it are racial divisions in our country. And these racial divisions translate to our politics as well. We have a state where we have incredibly divisive politics. We've got the Democrats and the Republicans, and the Republicans have a lot of white support. The rhetoric that is coming out of the White House is incredibly racist. And it is leading to this feeling of frustration. And on top of these feelings of frustration, many Americans doubt that there will be a peaceful transfer of power as Donald Trump has refused to concede to Joe Biden. U.S. business leaders have even come out saying that a peaceful concession is essential to providing stability for workers and business owners alike, while at the same time preventing potential social unrest. I really fear that the president will not give up power and that even if he eventually comes to an understanding of giving up the power, his constituents may not feel that and may come into DC. And you know, our country is full of instances of white 
led violence. We can think about Tulsa in 1921. We can think about when public housing became integrated, when neighborhoods became integrated, when suburbs became more racially integrated. There was a pushback. As businesses try to figure out whether to keep up their boarded windows or take them down in the next few days, we see a symbolic conversation happening in the city, one where business owners are discerning who or what constitutes as a threat to their business. What is going to happen to bring us a sense of security and bring us a sense of coming together as a country that will be in a situation where businesses don't feel like they have to board up. But to know that we are in a situation where hundreds and hundreds of downtown DC businesses made the decision to board up on their own and speaks to the uncertainty of our economic and political climate. But what is clear is that a peaceful transfer of power has implications that go far beyond just politics. But they need to go out in a way that reduces unrest and preserves our democracy. And, and we need to move forward now. So let's hope that we move forward without white-led violence. Dr. Derek Hyra, Associate Professor at American University and the founding director of the Metropolitan Policy Center. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Amara Evering. Voters in San Francisco last Tuesday took a step aimed at cutting away at the city's widening gap between the highest paid and lowest paid workers. Voters approved Proposition L, the overpaid executive tax. It targets businesses whose CEOs earn hundreds times more than their average workers. Sue Goodwin has more. To understand the why of San Francisco's new overpaid executive tax, it's important to understand the city itself. I know for a lot of folks that San Francisco is this progressive city, and we are progressive in many ways, but we also have a very extreme version of capitalism here where we have uh, large companies who are, are making record profits, and they are within a city that has extreme inequality with very severe consequences for the people who have been shut out. That's Matt Haney. He is a member of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, and he authored the new measure. Haney says it's a necessary step for a city that now has the highest level of income inequality in the state of California and one of the highest in the nation. You know, in income inequality in San Francisco and obviously around the country had gotten much worse over the past few decades. And, you know, CEO pay to worker pay is one indicator of that. Um, CEOs are... Uh, had their salaries go up over a thousand percent over the last 30 years, while worker pay adjusted for inflation has been largely stagnant. The result of that in San Francisco is one of the most unequal places in the entire world. The city uh, has dozens and dozens of billionaires, but if you walk down the streets of San Francisco, you will see a massive problem of homelessness, of poverty, people who have been completely shut out of that wealth. And I actually represent a district that has the highest income 
zip code and the lowest income zip codes in the same district. Um, I represent the headquarters of Airbnb, Uber, Lyft, massive tech companies, but also have the poorest people in the city, uh, who many of whom make uh, under twenty thousand or under thirty thousand dollars a year. So it's this massive disparity that we have to reverse. That we have to develop public policy solutions to to address. Um, and you know, this measure is just one of many things that we need to do. So here's how it works. Under the new law, any company, public or private, that pays its top executive 100 times more than their average worker will pay an extra 0.1% surcharge on its annual business tax payment. If a CEO makes 200 times more than the average employee, the surcharge increases to 0.2%. If the disparity is 300 times the average worker, the surcharge goes to 0.3%, and so on. The tax is expected to generate an extra 60 to $140 million per year for the city's general fund, and it couldn't come at a more critical time. As with many cities during this pandemic, San Francisco is facing a massive budget deficit. We've been faced with an over $1 billion budget deficit in San Francisco, which may require us to cut the salaries or lay off nurses and emergency responders. Um, This is at the same time that we have companies that are making more money than ever and billionaires that are getting richer than ever. It's a fundamental inequity and and it reflects misplaced priorities. At at the very time that these folks are saving our our lives, we are uh, in a place where we don't have enough resources to support them. Supervisors have recommended using the overpaid executive tax money to hire essential health care workers, first responders, and mental health care providers. Of course, companies could avoid paying the tax and choose to restructure their compensation to avoid the disparities in pay. Right now, Haney says he does believe most companies will just pay the tax, but it doesn't mean it will not have a deeper impact. With that said, I think that some will think about this in a different way and and, and look to compensation uh, structures, particularly if other cities, states, and the federal governments start to put forward similar taxes. I think you're going to see a number of cities and a number of states, including California, over this next year, look at what happened in San Francisco, look at what we've done, and start to, to put forward similar measures in in their states and and localities. The result of that, I think, would have more far-reaching impacts on the behavior of corporations and the choices that, you know, corporate boards and and CEOs make. You know, and, and we may see some companies around the margins actually make decisions to lift up compensation to avoid this tax, compensation of their workers, or reduce the compensation of their top paid executives. Haney says California has a similar bill that would apply statewide but hasn't moved much, and if efforts such as this take a while to move forward, he understands why. I think people are still a little scared to take on big companies, but what I will say is that this is a very popular concept. It polled very well. It obviously performed well on the ballot. Um, I don't think that is true only in San Francisco. I think if you pulled on this concept in most states across the country, um, it would have popularity. 
It's a populist concept that's based on fairness, that's based on sharing wealth, and, and it's based on a very widespread and growing concern about inequality and its impacts. It's similar in, in that way to, I think, how people respond across ideology to minimum wage. But even more so, it's, it's sort of about basic fairness. And I do think that other cities, other states, and maybe even the federal government will, will seriously consider moving forward similar proposals A similar proposal has been put forth in the U.S. Senate and House. The Tax-Excessive CEO Pay Act was introduced last year by Senator Bernie Sanders with Representatives Rashida Tlaib and Barbara Lee. It would impose tax penalties on companies that pay their CEOs more than 50 times the median salary of their employees. And Haney says, with a new president in office, the prospects for federal action look even brighter. There may be some opportunities in future tax bills that the Biden administration might look at. You know, I I think that in in some of the potential broader tax reform bills, they could add similar surcharges at the national level. And I hope that what they've seen in San Francisco is that this is a deep concern to, uh, to residents, not just San Franciscans, but I'm sure beyond. And this is a solution. Uh, It is not the whole solution. This is not going to solve income inequality. But I think it starts to move us in the right direction. And it gets companies to think more about their role. And if they don't do the right thing, they may pay a little bit more because there are definitely consequences to the inequality that they're contributing to. Matt Haney. He is a member of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors and author of the recently passed Proposition L., overpaid executive tax. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin. The stress of the election has presumably passed its peak, but Pandemic politics continues to rage in a tug-of-war between reopenings and restrictions. Washington, D.C. is home to such a battle. The district's public school system halted a plan last week to reopen elementary school classrooms after facing pushback from the powerful Washington Teachers Union. Chris Banker Drowns has that story. Trump may soon be gone from the White House, But the pandemic he failed to contain will continue to shape our lives and our policy choices. Washington, D.C., like many other cities across the country, introduced a plan to incrementally reopen schools for in-person instruction this fall. But, like in many other cities, teachers and parents in D.C. are concerned that their input wasn't fully included in reopening discussions. Elizabeth Davis is the president of the Washington Teachers Union, and she says teachers are the experts on what the district needs to do to reopen safely. So our teachers, when they left in March, many of them were aware of issues that they were having, structural issues, facilities issues with their schools before the pandemic. And what frightens them is DCPS saying that all of that's going to be fixed by November. And, And just want the teachers and parents to trust that. Well, I don't need to tell you that trust is a major issue in D.C. For the past 12 years, 
since we've been under mayoral control, it's been exacerbated the lack of trust between parents and the school district leaders, between teachers and the school system leaders. And we have to repair that trust, but it have, it's not gonna happen overnight. So in the meantime, the union is basically asking the chancellor to simply provide the evidence to parents that they're asking for. They wanna see transparent evidence that the schools actually will be ready to receive students safely. If all of those metrics that CDC, Department of Health, and Aussie says need to be instituted in every school before it reopens, then we want to see evidence that that has happened. And we simply don't want to rely on the chance of saying it's done. So the union basically has been negotiating with DC public schools for months. When the pandemic hit, we redirected our contract talks to basically address issues directly related to COVID-19. Because I knew that the mayor at some point was going to have to reopen the schools. Our teachers know that. They know that it's needed. Our teachers understand better than anyone else that there is absolutely nothing that can replace in-person teaching. And they wanna get back to in-person teaching, but they don't wanna do so at the risk of their own health, their families, or their students. So under the mayor's proposed plan, approximately 51,000 students. Under the mayor's plan, 7,000 of those students would receive in-person teaching. The remainder of those students, approximately 44,000 of them, would be in larger classrooms with librarians, counselors, technology coordinators. And, and these are individuals that the mayor's plan would pull from their classrooms, from their schools, in order to sit in the CARES classrooms. Now, how does that work? You have these individual teachers who are being pulled from the high schools, the middle schools, education campuses, to basically sit in a CARES classroom without delivering instruction, just to sit and observe while another teacher would teach them virtually. And the teachers who would continue the distance learning would end up with class sizes ranging from 40 to 45 students. And that is, that is unthinkable. It's just not a good plan. And, 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 and if the DC schools collaborated with the teachers and with parents, engaged them in the planning stages, this would not happen. Can you talk about the sick out that the union staged and how the pandemic made organizing that action different from the way you'd normally organize? Well, actually, Chris, that was not a sick out. That was a wellness day. And I'm not going to have the label sick out slapped on this because I have no idea how many of our teachers decided to uh, do that, how many at this point. Basically, with all of the stress that teachers have been under, many of them have been actually recommended to seek counseling with a, an organization, COPE, to help them to deal with some of the, the, the anxiety that they're dealing with, some of the trauma, and not to mention the secondary trauma that they're experiencing as a result of hearing from students who are experiencing hardship. We have teachers who have reported students who lost their families, lost their parents, their grandparents during COPE, during this pandemic. You know, we have 6,000 students who are in homeless shelters. And you can imagine what this pandemic, the effect that it is having on families that are homeless, including families that are, that are, that are not. But getting, having teachers to be able to connect with those students, the challenges that they've gone through, and some of them have gone out of their way to take devices to students who did not have them. I have teachers who have actually driven from Baltimore to DC to pick up devices to deliver 
to their students who live in shelters. Teachers who help, who, who basically work with the parents online during the weekend to help them to learn how to navigate the platforms and support their kids. So that was basically a day where teachers who decided I need a wellness day. I need a day to just sit, take time to reflect, think about what I want to do going forward, because we have some teachers who are expressing so much anxiety that they are deciding that it may not be worth it for them to stay in the profession, that they would rather leave than be forced to put their lives at risk. We have teachers who have contacted the union to say they're checking to see if they have the number of years that they can take early retirement, early out. We've never had that before now. And we really cannot afford to lose our teachers. There's a national teacher shortage. And we certainly do not need to leave, lose our most experienced teachers. We don't need to lose any. The turnover rate in DCPS is already a problem. It's at a crisis level. So we really don't need to put the extra strain and stress and anxiety on teachers that's going to force them to leave the system. I want to turn to the, the CARES classrooms that you talked about earlier, because I think this is a really interesting part of the reopening plan. It, it seems that from the mayor's perspective, there was a lack of teachers willing to teach and they were, you know, their hand was forced to create this care classroom situation where they drew in non-teaching staff. And I'm wondering if you can address both the fact that this seems to have been a self-created problem by the government, right? If they didn't involve teachers in their discussions to reopen, how can they expect teachers to come back en masse? And then secondly, how did they expect that to play out in the long run when they have to reopen middle and high schools? Who are going to staff those schools if their non-teaching staff was already moved to elementary schools? And, and what you just described is one of the reasons why the WTU gave the plan for reopening, the mayor's plan, a, a vote of no confidence. The disruption that this is going to cause for students in the high and middle school, the lack of clarity that teachers are getting, the plan basically fails to provide support to those students who mayor and the chancellor say are the neediest students, the, the students who are at the greatest risk, who've had the greatest amount of academic drop-off. Well, this plan does, will, will not address that, the way that it is done. And when you think about it, Chris, the teachers, in my opinion, are the true experts on what works. Teachers of special needs students, teachers of ELL students, those are the experts on being able to share with the chancellor what would work for those students. What is the best way to engage them, whether it's virtual or in person? If anyone took the time to listen to teachers over the past 12 years, and it seems like this problem has actually gotten worse since we've been under mayoral control where there's somewhat of a wall that has gone up between the school system and the community, between the school system and parents, between the school system and teachers, where nobody is heard. And the best ideas that the union has put forth, even in contract negotiations, the best proposals and recommendations for how we can do this effectively, equitably, in a way that all students are gonna be served well, has come from teachers, teachers in every instance but who's listening to them? Certainly not the school district. Lastly, obviously reopening schools is such a huge question for localities across the country. And I'm wondering how much communication there is between teachers union locals, both on a national and on a regional level to discuss reopening best practices um, and frankly, when to put your foot down when school districts have gone too far. That's a very good question. I do appreciate you asking that because uh, as a member of the American Federation of Teachers Public Policy Council, I've met and 
become close friends with union leaders in other jurisdictions, Fairfax County, Detroit, Chicago, and Baltimore. We talked to each other. I contacted the president of the Detroit Federation of Teachers, the Chicago Federation of Teachers, to ask them about the reopening plans, their engagement. And the idea of creating this memorandum of agreement as a supplement to our contract to address COVID actually came from the AFT leaders across the nation. So we basically shared information on what should go into that, the safety checklist that we're using for the school walkthroughs. I shared that with not only the uh, president of the local unions here, Fairfax County Teachers Union, Baltimore Teachers Union. We also shared it with the leaders of the Teamsters Union. All of those unions representing school workers in DC, we have been working together. The Principals Union, the Teamsters Union, Council 21 asked me representing the paraprofessionals, the Nurses Union. And we've got to do that, Chris, because labor, when you really think about it, labor unions really are the ones who enlighten individuals about across the nation about the need to protect the civil, human, and working rights of workers. Elizabeth Davis, president of the Washington Teachers Union. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. That's our show for today. Monday Morning QB is produced by Chris Bangert-Drowns, Amara Evering, and Sue Goodwin. I'm Askia Muhammad. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash WPFWMMQB. Please stay safe, mask up, and thank you for listening and contributing to WPFW Washington and WBAI New York.